we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located as always somewhere in a County Cork in Ireland, we tackle stories of the strange, tempting to remain critical, but never cynical. You join us on this occasion on my second attempt at recording this episode. This one, of course, is the Bigfoot at the Movies Man or Beast episode. It's my second time because the first time I forgot to put the pop guard on like a complete doofus and therefore the whole episode sounded like which isn't great. It's not a good look. It's not a good sound. I'm not too thrilled about it but that's okay because you know the second time you do something it is always better right? Uh, If you think so reach out to us as always on Twitter we are at Strange Ireland and on Instagram we are White Atlantic Weird podcast and you can help the show if you're a fan with a wonderful no strings attached one-off kind of a deal over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic this week huge thanks to Anne in the i believe the northwest of the u.s somewhere let's keep it vague uh, which which actually fits in with this episode all about uh, bigfoot hunters in the pacific northwest she says um, and buys you a coffee and then says thanks for your nifty shows i appreciate the ecology threads and the re-enchanting the landscape theory in the big cats episode. Also, there are real big cats near my house, so it was interesting to step into a world where they would be alien, which is a nice comment. Thanks very much for that, Anne. Um, and yeah, I believe somewhere she's listening somewhere from the northwest of the US, where of course you have um, mountain lions or cougars or whatever you call them. Uh, when I worked in Minnesota, we had a few mountain lion sightings they make really crazy noises Uh, a friend of mine who was working with us up in the north woods had a video from very close to where we were staying of two cougars facing off in the middle of a forest track and they make these crazy noises that sound very human they sound like humans arguing and having a bit of a rant and kind of growling at each other and the way people sometimes do when they're not pleased so uh, yeah, if if you're hearing weird noises at night, you know, I mean, it could be a Sasquatch, but there are various other things that it could be as well, and I've been lucky enough to hear some of them out in the wilds myself. Right, I want to say thanks to uh, listener Paul A. Murphy for bringing us some extra information on a, a, a mystery, something I've been wondering for a while. So last year, myself and friend of the show, Victoria Pearson, took a road trip to Dublin to visit the Hellfire Club, which is a a historical building on top of a hill looking down um, on Dublin City and just outside it, uh, usually when people visit the Hellfire Club, um, which is kind of infamous because of the doings of the club who were supposed to have been uh, Satanists and um, occultists and all sorts of things back in the day, but before you go and visit their alleged hideout, people generally stop off at Killicky House, which is at the foot of the hill. 
and is also a historic building and also has a lot of kind of spooky stories associated with it mostly from the mid-20th century um, with the stories of workmen encountering poltergeists and also a, a spooky ghostly black cat and if you go and visit there as we did there is a painting of the ghost cat up on the wall which is um, very, very effective spooky unsettling eyes following you around the room kind of painting so it, it's, it's that kind of a job so worth a look anyway I of course have books from my childhood about ghosts and stuff and one of my favorite ones is the Osborne supernatural guidebooks and I think the one in particular was ghosts haunted houses ghosts inspectors which is written by Eric Maple and Lynn Myring Eric Maple of course was a respected Essex based I believe folklorist who collected a lot of great stories for the book and there is one story in there which I've never been able to trace I have no idea where this came from but he says in the book that in a place in Ireland called Killikey which sounds like Killikey House to me can't find another example um in the 60s there was an invasion of the building by a poltergeist who invaded the building with flying hats and the illustration accompanying this has all different kinds of hats like bonnets and trilbies and what have you and I've never been able to find out where this story came from. I presume it's Killikey House from the Hellfire because the word is similar and because there is a poltergeist tradition associated with Killikey House. But listener uh, Paul A. Murphy did some digging on this and has tracked down maybe a little bit more information from a 2010 issue of Paranormal magazine and an article written by Richard Freeman. Richard Freeman writes... During a poltergeist outbreak in Killikey, Ireland in the 1960s, furniture exploded, pools of glue manifested themselves, and the house in question was invaded by a swarm of phantom hats. The hats seemed to come from all ages and styles, including Victorian top hats and bonnets as well as modern hats. The swarm of hats vanished as quickly as it had come, and no explanation for them was ever found. So, Paul warns rightly so that um, this writer Richard Freeman maybe seems to be pulling from the same article that either he's pulling from the the haunted houses book the the maple book or he is using the same source because but there is a a few tiny little bits of extra information in there the exploding furniture and the the pools of glue that's an odd one Uh, I do wonder if if indeed this writer had access to the the haunted houses book he may have noticed that on the same page as this image of the flying hats, is another poltergeist story, I think from the UK, from remembering from memory, of an old man in a room where his window is exploding in on him because of the actions of a poltergeist. I wonder if that's where the idea of the exploding furniture came from and whether uh, Mr. Freeman maybe has confused those two stories. I don't know. But neither of us really knows any more than that and we have not still found out what the origin of this particular story is. I do feel like maybe both writers are pulling from the same source somewhere. So, uh, you know, still on the trail of that particular mystery. Right, moving on to things involving Sasquatchery. Uh, I haven't recommended for a long time a an, like an, a, a dark ambient audio album uh, and I have one that is suitably themed for this episode all about Bigfoot hunters. It is by a, an artist known as Crowl, that is K-R-A-U-H-L. The album is called Call of the Woodwoes. The Woodwoes, of course, is a European wild man archetype that shows up in, I think, medieval heraldry and medieval imagery. And it's kind of like this mythological figure of a, a man who's covered in hair and lives in the forest. 
And of course, some people tie this to stories of Sasquatch from the New World as well. And I think that's what Crowell is doing here because the the album is a soundscape meant to represent the kind of forests, I think, of the Pacific Northwest with stories of loggers and campers and hunters encountering mystery animals. And uh, thrillingly, he uses uh, bits of real actual audio dialogue from the documentary that we're going to talk about in this episode, which is called uh, Bigfoot Man or Beast. In case I haven't said it yet, I probably should say that. So that's Crowl Call of the Woodwolves and fits in incredibly nicely with our topic for this episode. So as you're listening, imagine me here at the cabin in the woods, surrounded by Bigfoot paraphernalia, because that's just the kind of guy I am. Up on one wall, I have a fully blown up image of the the infamous Eric Shipton 1951 uh, abominable snowman footprint, which you'd probably recognize if you saw it. And on my other wall, I have a big blow up framed copy of uh, the infamous frame 352 from the Patterson-Gimlin film, that's the famous Bigfoot uh, bit of footage where in that particular frame, Patty, as she's known, is, uh, you know, pausing in mid-stride just to, you know, coquettishly look over her shoulder at the viewer. Uh, and um, that's a very famous imagery, kind of sums up all of cryptozoology in, in some people's minds, I think. So... Oh, and also, of course, I have a, a a lumpy, misshapen plaster cast of a mysterious footprint that I found uh, somewhere in the Wicklow Mountains. So the uh, jury is still out on that one as to what exactly I found. And as I'm sitting here telling these stories and surrounded by this paraphernalia, uh, I'm drinking, of course, a fine coffee, as it is still early in the day. Uh, and it's from Cork Coffee Roasters, which means I have to, I had to go into the city to pick it up but it's worth it because it's pretty good stuff so it's time to start talking about the documentary or if you will mockumentary perhaps question mark bigfoot man or beast so there exists on youtube you can look at it yourself a documentary called bigfoot man or beast and the date given to it is 1972. And I think if you look at IMDb, they will give you the same date. I think this is probably incorrect, um, but it's complicated. I think this film is a stitch up. I think it was filmed as two separate movies and I think they were later put together into one. And I think it was re-edited and redistributed under at least two different titles as well. So the exact date is a little bit difficult to figure out. The year given on the film itself at the very end is 1975, and I tend to believe that because this film is mostly a chronicle of the Bigfoot hunter Robert Morgan on an expedition, which I've pretty much, I'm pretty certain I figured out happened in 1974. He called it the American, uh, the American Yeti expedition to the Pacific Northwest, and that was 1974. Now, turnaround on these kind of films was usually pretty soon, so I think a date in either 1974 or 5 feels about right and I think that that's what I'm going to go with for now. I will have more information about the making of the film at the very end of this episode. I also suspect that this film was what they used to call four-walled, meaning that it was it was shown as part of a very particular type of mid-20th century American kind of uh, film screening, which I learned, I didn't know much about. I learned a lot about it from Monster Talk podcast, which I'm sure most of you are aware of. They're tremendous, tremendous show and really top of their top of this game. I think people doing some of the best work out there on these kind of topics, but they, they make a very good case for how 
this type of filmmaking helped to popularize specifically ideas of um, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and a few other weird ideas as well. I've also learned about four-walling from the book Bigfoot, Life and Times of a Legend by Joshua Bluebuzz, which I do quote from a lot on this show, but I find it a tremendously useful resource because it has a good in-depth take on kind of the main important points in the evolution of the idea of Bigfoot over the years, and they're all in chronological order, which I like, folks, because as you know, I'm kind of crazy about, like, when did things happen? Which thing happened before which other thing? And which thing might have influenced which other thing? So that's that's something I'm hung up on. Now, Joshua Bluebuzz on page 154 says this. At the time, moviegoing was mostly an urban phenomenon, with costly movies playing for months in ornate city theatres. Along with the cadre of competing independents, American National Enterprises, so remember that company, was exploiting the holes in this business model and pioneering a new way of marketing and distributing movies. The independents focused on rural areas, renting entire theatres, all four walls as it were, giving them their nickname Four Wallers to show their movies. Uh, in smaller towns without theatres, they rented high school gymnasiums or Elks clubs. The films usually played in the winter when there was abundant free time and few competing entertainments. In many ways, the shows were an extension of rural popular culture. They were interactive with hosts and discussion sessions. He also mentions that the many of the subjects of these were nature films. There was an, he says, quote, there was an intense craving for films that were true, that were authentic. So a lot of them were about, you know, backwoods life, hunting, fishing, uh, hiking, camping, that sort of thing. But he says, at the same time, the audiences showed a decided interest in the paranormal. One of American National Enterprise's competitors, Sun Pictures, made its name releasing documentaries on the Bermuda Triangle, Noah's Ark and Aliens that gave birth to human civilization. So this is a whole sort of, you know, art form, cultural form, which you know, was very popular amongst a vast swath of the North American public, which has kind of gone under the radar and people don't know about anymore or is, is not well remembered and certainly wasn't celebrated by, in you know, people doing award ceremonies for movies in New York or Los Angeles at the end of the year. So, you know, these ideas were getting out there via these these pathways that are now kind of forgotten. I think it's a little bit like the, the men's magazines that we've talked about previously. Again, a, a vector for spreading ideas about Bigfoot, you know, in a, in a ways that we're kind of forgotten about now. So that's yeah. I'm always I'm always interested in how these ideas spread around and um, who who's paying attention to them and how are they framed and stuff like that. So we come to this documentary, Bigfoot Man or Beast, probably 1975. And man, this is the most 70s thing you have ever heard of. And and to get this across, I'm going to turn to letterboxed reviews letterbox.com and from a review by somebody called sloth troyer who writes this one of my favorite things about lower end 70s films is how sun scorched everything looks and this may be the most sun scorched of them all everything is golden and hazy like the sun is exploding or like everything we are seeing is taking place underneath an ocean of piss delightful this is a pretty classic example of a Bigfoot wild goose chase and really made to feel like a sort of tragedy by the end. So like I said, I think this film is a stitch up. Um, the first 20 minutes 
of it seems to be from one project and the rest of it seems to be from a different one. Uh, like this reviewer said, all of it is drenched in that glorious 70s kind of uh, nostalgic Instagram filter type thing where everything looks uh, really crisp and clear but really old and yellow. So it looks like, it gives you the feeling that this was filmed in in the middle of the woods on the, the hottest day imaginable where everything is, is scorched and washed out and then the footage was taken and the, the film was taken and just left out in the sun for a, a good many decades and then somebody dug it up and found it and that's what we're watching. So it has this wonderful old oldie worldy quality to it which I, I enjoy very much. Uh, and most of the, like I said, the first 20 minutes is one thing. It's like a short romp through kind of the history of, of the idea of Bigfoot up until that point with lots of famous cases and interviews with some interesting people who we'll get to. But then the, the bulk of the film is about this expedition in 1974 led by a guy called Robert Morgan, who is a very distinctive looking guy. He's He's got a shaved head and then he's got a little tight mouth goatee. And he looks a lot like Anton LaVey, the guy who came up with LaVey and Satanism, the Church of Satan in the 1960s. Uh, what I tend to call sort of art statement Satanism, which is nonsense to separate it from, you know, a good old fashioned Dennis Wheatley Satanism, which I much prefer. So I found some information about Robert Morgan in a book called, of all things, Regional Horror Films, 1958-1990 by Brian Allwright. And that's because... Robert Morgan was not only a Bigfoot hunter, he was also uh, a man involved in low-budget monster movie making. So, uh, I'm going to read briefly from that book. It says, Of all the filmmakers interviewed for this book, Robert Morgan may have the most eccentric biography. Best known to horror fans as the director, writer, producer and star of Bloodstalkers, 1976, Morgan already had a lengthy and diverse resume before he started making low-budget films. Born in Canton, Ohio... Morgan was serving in the Navy when, in 1956, his life took an abrupt turn. Morgan claims he had a chance encounter during a hunting trip in Washington with a creature he would come to call a forest giant, Bigfoot. Short, with a shaved head and goatee, Morgan was an instantly recognisable and sometimes controversial figure in the Bigfoot community. He then goes on to say, At the height of his career, Morgan appeared in a number of films including The Mysterious Monsters from 1976, Monsters, Mysteries or Myths in 1974 and In Search of Bigfoot 1976. The latter two films documented Morgan's 1974 American Yeti expedition into the Pacific Northwest at the time one of the most elaborate of its type. So this expedition we're going to talk about shows up in not one but two separate documentaries. In Search of Bigfoot, which I think is the is a different name for the one we're going to watch. Uh, Bigfoot Manor Beast. I think they are the same film with different names and different release dates. Um, interestingly, In Search of Bigfoot is dated to 1976, whereas the one we're about to talk about, Manor Beast, is dated to 1975. The other one, Monsters, Mysteries or Myths from 1974, was actually, there was involvement from the Smithsonian of all people in that one. And that, that story is more than I can get into. Uh, Sharon Hill has written a wonderful article about the, how that film came to be and how important it was in perpetuating these ideas of cryptozoology in the 1970s. I'll put a link to it in the notes. It's absolutely worth your time, but uh, a little bit beyond the scope uh, of this episode. But basically, this was a, an incredibly fertile time for these kind of pseudo-documentaries, if you want to call them that. 
and for spreading these ideas um, about monsters and stuff like that. Like, uh, I have some ideas about how much of this I think is legitimate and how much of it I think is put on a little bit. It's hard to know with Morgan because he was an actor, producer, he was involved in monster movies, in, you know, fictitious monster movies, and he isn't afraid to ham it up a little bit for the camera, and he isn't afraid to emphasize some of the storytelling beats. Uh, we'll get we'll get to how much of it I think he might be putting on. By and large, I like him in this film, and hopefully that will, that will show in my uh, description and talk through it. So, amongst other things, he trained uh, in early computers, and then went off and took a at least one summer at being a logger and he met people who had Bigfoot stories while he was out in the forests of the northwest doing that and like we said he worked on various low-budget creature movies as well. So Robert Morgan doesn't show up for about 20 minutes in this film because like I said I think the first 20 minutes is something else altogether a separate film. Uh, we start off with the title Bigfoot Man or Beast and lots of nature photography and there's going to be a lot of padding in this film with uh, stuff which is potentially stock helicopter footage of the the area mostly around Mount St. Helens. I don't know where all of this expedition actually happened because I know that they spent some time in Oregon and then they abandoned that and then they went to Mount St. Helens uh, but there are lots of shots of that particular volcano so at least we can assume that most of it's happening somewhere in that in that area but all that is still to come because we have this preliminary feature if you like and the, this photography really emphasizes the wilderness of the pacific northwest and you know that's all stuff i'm particularly interested in i was lucky enough to work a summer in oregon about 10 years ago and saw a little bit of of north california and a very tiny bit of uh, washington state as well so i you know i have a great place in my heart for that part of the world i i'm i'm continue to be hypnotized and astonished and and captivated by places as large as that that are not completely developed and I, I think especially being from a small country I'm just I find it overwhelming that spaces like this still exist um, that aren't completely built on <laughs> so I am enchanted by this footage and the fact that it is old and yellowy footage from the 70s somehow makes it even more magical we then get the name of the company producing this which is American National Enterprises who I think we've mentioned already and we get our narrator for this small section and his name is Jay English Smith and he there's this kind of wraparound thing where he's visiting a logging camp while wearing this inspector gadget coat that's like the only way I can describe it and he's got these big bottle end glasses and he's talking about Bigfoot and what, what Bigfoot is supposed to be. And then he asks somebody named Ron Olson to come and talk. And Ron Olson is behind him in the logging camp, like trying to work a an electric saw or some or a chainsaw or something. And he's like, hey Ron, come over and tell us about your hunt for Bigfoot. And it's kind of made out like, you know, Ron just happens to be Ron just happens to be there on the hunt for Bigfoot. When Ron Ron Olson in real life was a Bigfoot hunter of sorts, but he was also a pro he's the producer. He's the producer of this documentary. And he's the guy who got Roger Patterson, the guy who took the, the famous Patterson-Gimlin film. Uh, Ron Olson got him into four-walling because uh, when, when Patterson had this short clip of Bigfoot and he didn't know what to do with it or he didn't know how to make money out of it, Ron Olson said, look, expand it into a feature, take it on the road, book out little places in each town, and you know do a little talk beforehand 
Uh, so he was in, intimately involved in the film industry and also in, you know, the spreading of these ideas of, of Bigfoot. So he's an important guy in the history of Bigfoot. It's interesting to see him just brought in. And it's always interesting when you know who these people are to see how they're presented in documentaries. You know, are they admitting that this person has a background in spreading the idea or in film? Or are they just trying to pretend like he's he's just, hey man, he's just an ordinary guy operating a chainsaw. So, so Jay English Smith is like, hey Ron, come here and tell us about this Bigfoot thing. And then they immediately cut into some historical encounters. We've got the 1924, uh, the famous Ape Canyon one, which they just briefly talk about. Um, that's a famous one from the 20s where these miners are in a cabin uh, somewhere near Mount St. Helens and they shoot uh, an ape-like creature one day and it falls into this canyon which is then ever after called Ape Canyon and then they're attacked during the night by a whole bunch of these creatures who are throwing rocks at them and stuff like that. It's a very famous story. The creatures themselves are referred to either as apes or as mountain devils if you go back and read the actual newspaper accounts from the time. The, the main man, Fred Beck, he, in 1967 I believe, he wrote a booklet called I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens in which he retells the story but it's all weird and mystical and spiritual and he talks about how the beings are you know not corporeal they're kind of spiritual and they can shift in and out of our reality and you know it's it's much more mystical than the, the way the story is usually told now that's what he wrote in 1967 whether he believed that in back in the 1920s is unclear to me I mean, to me, a lot of that stuff sounds very 60s, and I wonder whether his ideas changed. There are newspaper accounts from the 20s which imply that, however, the miners were um, using kind of psychic means and conducting seances to find out exactly where to go mining. So, you know, uh, there is evidence that they were into some of the spiritual stuff back then as well. So who knows? But um, somebody, an old man appears on screen talking while, they, while they're telling this story. And I presume it's Fred Beck in the 70s, but they don't use the name. I don't know. Obviously, he was, was he still alive? He was alive as late as 1967 anyway. Interestingly, for me, who likes keeping tabs on like when things happen, he wrote that 1967 booklet not after, but before the Patterson-Gimlin footage. So just to show that, like, even though that, that film gave a shot in the arm to the Bigfoot idea. You know, there were there were still important things happening beforehand. We then hear about Albert Osman. Uh, this is a famous goofy case. So in 1957, after the town of, I think, let me see if I get my, my timings right here. After the town of Harrison Hot Springs up in British Columbia, um, after they decide to have this kind of publicity Bigfoot hunting day and the word gets around, um, a guy called William Rowe has an encounter and that's written up by John Green, who we'll get to. And then Albert Osman reads John Green's uh, report in the newspaper and comes out and says, oh, I have a story too. So for back in the 20s, he says, well, he's not saying this until 1957, but he's saying that this happened. Back in the 20s, he was a prospector in, in the west of Canada somewhere and he is out in the wilds and he wakes up in the middle of the night and some Bigfoots have like snatched him in his sleeping bag and taken him off to uh, a lost valley somewhere where there's a family of these Sasquatches. That's what they would have been called at the time. The word Bigfoot didn't exist. And he is there for several weeks and he eventually escapes because they eat his snuff and pass out or fall asleep or something. 
So we do see Albert Usman telling a bit of his story. He's still around and still telling a story by the mid-70s. So John Green, I mentioned him already. He's important. And we meet him next. This is great. We're meeting everybody in this. All the important people. John Green is the first of our mm, canonical four horsemen of Sasquatchery. The four people who, you know, people in the fandom. I'm, I'm going to call it that just for fun. Who, who um, four people who are considered important in the conception of Bigfoot as we know him in the modern way. There are precedents, of course. We've mentioned some of them already, but after the idea kind of comes together mostly in the 50s, I would say. So John Green is editor of a newspaper called the Agassi Advance, Ag Agassi Advance, something like that. And he's up in British Columbia and he's reading these stories from 20 years earlier and he's searching for accounts you know current in the 1950s in this documentary we meet john green uh, visiting the site of the ruby creek sighting the, a woman named chapman reported seeing a creature back in 1941 so we see john green like t telling the story of this encounter and he's actually physically there at the site which is pretty cool what do we know about the ruby creek sighting it did happen in 1941 it was written up in the newspapers at the time weirdly it was written by none other than jw burns who is the guy who had first popularized the concept of sasquatch 20 years before that in, in the in the 1920s and uh, when he wrote he wrote various articles about the idea of sasquatch as as a race of mystical giants or as a, as a race of lost um, native americans he's a little bit vague about that Interestingly, when he wrote about the Ruby Creek sighting in 1940, in 1941, John Burns didn't say this was a Sasquatch. He said it was some kind of giant bear creature. But then later on, after John Green kind of retroactively decides this must have been a Sasquatch, uh, John Burns uh, decides uh, to get on board with that. And uh, I think he was living in San Francisco by that point, And he said, yep, that's cool. It, it was a Sasquatch. So, yeah, we're, we're meeting all the important movers and shakers here. We then meet, I mentioned the William Rowe encounter, but I didn't really say what that was. Don't know how in-depth to get with this stuff. I've covered some of this material previously, but it's fun stuff. And, and my thinking on some of it has changed a bit since those early, those early episodes, so why not? So we meet this woman. Her name is Myrtle Walton, and her father was William Rowe. Now, he's important because, again, in 1957, when the town of Harrison Hot Springs is kind of hyping up its Sasquatch hunt, he reports a sighting. He says, right, two years earlier, 1955, I was hunting and I met a female Sasquatch and I was going to shoot her, but she seemed so kind of uh, human-like or part human-like um, that I didn't shoot. And he makes it clear that she's kind of part human, part beast, kind of ape-like sort of looking. And Myrtle Walton, the daughter, does a famous drawing of this female Sasquatch. And it's very clear that it's very animal-like, very ape-like. Now, this this image has effects. So a, a lot of my thinking on this comes from Blue Buzz book, but also from Darren Nature's book, Haunting Monsters. They both point out that William Rowe has his sighting, or reports his sighting in 1957, female Sasquatch, but in 1960 in True magazine. And I have a, I have a, I have a painting of this, or I have a copy of this painting somewhere in my library. I think it was in Cryptozoology Anthology, that book. 
Um, so Ivan T. Sanderson, famous early cryptozoologist, writes a story called America's Mystery Giant, in which he retells some Sasquatch stories. He tells William Rowe's story, and it's illustrated by the the, the great Mort Kunstler. Uh, so he has a, a, an amazing picture. Look this one up if you haven't seen it, where William Rowe is in the foreground, and he's he's a backwoods man. He's wearing his his plaid shirt, and he's got his gun, and he's pointing at. He's he's in this clearing, and walking across the clearing is this big hulking clearly pseudo ape-like beast with uh, and it's female it's got the big as everybody says the big pendulous breast that's the phrase they use over and over again in all of these documentaries and it's kind of turning its head um to look at him and this picture went on to have and it, you know it's based on the picture that myrtle walton drew of her father's sighting then it's in true magazine in 1960 then roger patterson is so impressed by this image that he rips it off in his article uh, do abominable snowmen of america really exist or is it's a pamphlet it's a booklet in 1966 in which he does all his own artwork but a lot of them are taken from earlier pre-existing art so he is like basically tracing this more consular picture of the female sasquatch and then the following year 1967 what happens he films the patterson gimlin footage of a female sasquatch walking across a clearing turning to look at the camera that's the Patterson money shot, as as folks have written before. Interesting. And then that's the film that he takes on the road and goes four-walling on the advice of Ron Olson. Interestingly, he, uh, Gimlin was, and Bob Gimlin was out of the picture for a while. I'm un- unclear as to why, but Patterson, I guess, I guess people knew that there were two of them involved in the story. So Patterson gets like a, a fake Bob Gimlin. He hires an actor to come on stage and pretend to be him for uh, at least a couple of years. So good times there. So we then get this amazing footage of somebody. Well, you don't see them, but the footage is of of the forest, just empty forest. And the camera is just spookily gliding through this empty, evocative forest. And somewhere off camera, somebody is uh, doing a Bigfoot call, which supposedly is what Myrtle Walton heard. So she has her own um, audio encounter with a thing that she thinks is Bigfoot. And the sound is downright terrifying. It's a very effective moment. We get a very short mention of the 1958 Jerry Crew prints, which is actually really important in the history of, of Bigfoot. That's the case where Bigfoot kind of makes the leap from Canada to the US. It's in Willow Creek, California. And that's where we, that particular encounter is where we get the name Bigfoot from. But this uh, documentary doesn't say too much about it. It jumps straight into the second of our four, four horsemen, Rene de Hinden, who is famously the kind of crankiest, crotchetiest, crustiest out of the four. He is, uh, I believe he was a Swiss immigrant who came to America and became obsessed with um, the Sasquatch and spent many years chasing it all over the place and never had a, a sighting himself. And um, we'll, I gave him a little bit of short shrift, I think, on previous episodes, but he's actually... I quite like him now. I've watched lots more of him. And um, yeah, he's a cranky bastard. But, you know, wouldn't you be if you'd spent your whole life (laughs) chasing this thing? And he has no time for anyone who's soft on the issue of, you know, shooting or not shooting the animal. He's like, look, I've been doing this for years and I got nothing to show for it. Shoot the bastard. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes I have time for that. And then we cut to another, the third of our four horsemen. This is amazing. Grover Krantz, who is a physical anthropologist. And this is, 
he's he brings up the kind of the scientific side of things he's the one with the actual scientific training and he gets in on the act because he's convinced this is real because of a a case that happens in a place called Bosberg in Washington and he's holding a cast of a footprint that he found when he was there and it's called cripple foot which is not, not, not an amazing turn of phrase these days but that's what it's called this was the case that made him think that Bigfoot was real because it seems to show an animal that's had an injury to its foot and continued to survive and uh, you know grow and he reckoned that you know a, a hoaxer would be extremely unlikely to have the anatomical knowledge to pull something like this off Unfortunately, the Bosberg prints are all mixed up with the work of a guy called Ivan Marx, who is very well known for many ludicrous hoaxes. So I don't I don't really think anybody should be taking stuff seriously. That's anything to do with him. But for whatever reason, this was the one that um, flipped Grover Krantz's um, lid for him and, and got him onto the case. So for better or for worse. We then cut back to the bookend of our host, Mr. English. And he starts talking about how they're going to be using computers to collate data now. And he's he reaches his hand into like the, the cab of a truck and pulls out this like hilarious wadge of old school computer paper and talks about how you can phone, I don't know, like 1-800-BIGFOOT or whatever and report your sighting and it will all be collated by the computers. And that's the end of the kind of initial 20 minute section, which I think probably was once its own film that may have played before longer features. Editing key in here. I actually think it might have been paired with a 1972 film called Cry of the Wild. But it's time to get to the main feature, which is, of course, the amazing adventures of our boy Robert Morgan. And Robert Morgan is introduced via some jaunty and repetitive harmonica music. And I hope you really like this because it plays over and over and over again throughout the whole rest of the show. And it goes like this. Over and over and over. And sometimes a five-string banjo joins in just to make it sound a little bit more folksy, a little bit more jaunty. And this music plays when Robert Morgan is wandering all around the Pacific Northwest and Mount St. Helens in particular. And it plays while he assembles his crew. So he gets a team of mostly fairly young people. He will claim that they all have PhDs in various things. I think that's pretty unlikely. I think some of them at least are definitely undergrads who were doing this for a cup of coffee and a sandwich, probably. But I love this stuff. If I had been around and somebody said to me, Kian, do you want to go on a Bigfoot hunt on Mount St. Helens? in 1974 i'd have said hell yes this ticks all my buttons back then when back then you know when we knew less and there were not so many decades of disappointing results and this was something you might still hope for i would absolutely have been on board with it and i love the fact that you have this cool team of you know cool young people and they're scientists and they're going out for an adventure and, you know, they, this has the sheen of authenticity about it. I want to buy into this. I, I, I can see exactly why people found this exciting. And this is so much better than Bigfoot hunting shows today, where it's just like people in the dark with the green night cam going, what was that? Did you hear that? That stuff is absolute bollocks. Pardon my French. Okay, so we get loads more footage 
emphasizing the vastness and the wilderness of the terrain and we get lots of monologues from Robert Morgan about how this is all an, an untamed frontier and you know this this is all about self-actualization I think this is all about uh, men mostly some women to be fair and um, just wanting a way to go and be rough and tough and, and live the old-fashioned American frontier dream and have a place where they can go where there is still danger and adventure and yeah like I said most of this is happening around Mount St. Helens which isn't going to be there for a whole lot longer uh, in 1974 and Robert Morgan says he starts waxing lyrical about Bigfoot and he starts saying things like you know he belongs here he lives with nature we live in spite of it and, and again this makes me think of Robert M. Pyle's book where Bigfoot walks where he just talks about how you know, I don't think the Bigfoot hunters want to get Bigfoot. I think they want to be Bigfoot. So, you know, if you see yourself as... If part of your self-image is like, hey, I'm a backwoods man, I'm an outdoors dude, uh, I can live in the wilderness, you know, well, Bigfoot does it better than you. He's faster than you. He doesn't need a backpack. He doesn't need all the equipment that you have. And Robert Morgan pretty much says this. So they're, they see Bigfoot as a symbol of things that they want, things that they miss. He's a symbol of the wild. He's a symbol of self-sufficiency. So you've got all these, you know, old American West metaphors going on. You've also got this kind of very 70s ecological stuff going on. And there will be a lot of footage later in the documentary of, you know, the destruction of the, the forest because of logging. And, you know, the, the I think the ecological anxiety of the age is, is, is happening just below the surface here as well. Speaking of logging camps, that's where the crew go next. They visit a logging camp where there has been a sighting, and I quite like that scene. And then one of the team, um, a young lady named Anne Swain, who, it must be said, is very lovely. She sits on top of, very dramatically, she sits on top of this rock um, perched just above this vast gorge and talks about a sighting that she has while she's on the expedition um, of a distant figure who she thinks might be Biggie, and uh, she scopes him out with binoculars. Another crew member, Mike Polesnik, he is sent off into this wild, particularly wild area, so wild that they apparently can't send the cameraman there. Um, and he spends a few days pottering around there and much is made of, you know, how dangerous this is going to be. And when he comes back, he has seen some footprints. So they go and do some kind of classic Bigfoot documentary stuff like taking the cast of the footprints. And then we see some botanists on the team doing some actual, what looks to me like some actual science. Um, they have uh, eye pieces and, and, and they are looking at, you know, reticles and stuff like that. And I can't imagine why anybody would be doing that if they weren't actual botanists. And they're collecting specimens and they're making notes and it all looks fairly above board. Having said that, I have no idea how proper how correct Robert Morgan surveying is in general. Like, you know, when you're doing ecology and you want to find out how many creatures are of some sort are in an area or where they are or how they're moving, there are ways of doing that that are kind of statistical and quantifiable. I have no idea how he's organizing all this and the documentary is not too interested in it. The point is all these cool young people are, are being manly and macho and tough and having an adventure. That's what's important here. So... Then Morgan takes a break from the expedition and he goes and meets our boys John Green and Renee Hendon. Uh, and they seem they're sitting around this kind of park table in a forest somewhere. And they're having the eternal debate about shoot or don't shoot. Do you shoot Sasquatch? Is it acceptable to shoot Sasquatch in order to prove that he's real? 
I don't give a fig about this particular debate. I think it's boring. But I do like the way, in this case, um, Morgan kind of gets a bit teary-eyed and he's like, oh, I think, you know, the young people have, with, with Vietnam and everything, you know, I think the young people have had enough killing. And it's all, what? 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 Why, why are you bringing Vietnam to this? What's Vietnam got to do with anything? You're out of your element, Robert Morgan. So, yeah, he really hams it up here. I mean, maybe he believes this. I don't know. But dude is a filmmaker. You know, he, he knows a character beat when he sees one. And and Renata Hinden, of course, is like, nah, I've spent too long on this. I'm not wasting any more time. I'm shooting that thing. No one's going to listen to any evidence except a body. Damn it, Renata Hinden, you were right. You're right. So we then get an exploration of lava caves. There's some rock throwing. When the guys come out of the cave, one of the team says, oh, just when you were when you were gone there, you know, there was some mysterious rock throwing, which is an element which remains in Bigfoot lore to this day. And now all of this is padded out by more photography of the landscape. It's beautiful. It's sepia toned. It's very 70s. And then we meet some witnesses who have had encounters and Robert Morgan talks to them. And one lady in particular who says she's had an encounter with a heavily pregnant Sasquatch and he asks her outright, was it human? And she's, or was it, was it an animal, he says. And she says straight away, no, it was human. Which kind of harkens back to the pre-1950, some of the pre-1950s ideas about what Sasquatch might have been, that it was, you know, some other, you know, group of homo sapiens who are just living differently to us. This is when the film kind of starts showing us a lot of scenes of logging destruction, and we get the idea that, you know, the clock is ticking, we've got to step things up and find this creature before we run out of time, before the creature no longer has anywhere to live, and some of these, you know, ecological anxieties are starting to creep in. And then Robert Morgan and Mike Pelesnik go together back into that wild area where Pelesnik had been before. And this time the cameraman goes with them. And we get long sections of them being macho and manly together. And they talk a lot about how, you know, tough and dangerous this place is. And they're clearly getting off on it. Now, you know, I've done stuff like this before for work sometimes. And just looking at this footage, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that that that's tough terrain. You know, it... It's hard work. I, I grant you that. It's it's not to be not to be sniffed at at all. It's just like why do we put ourselves into these dangerous or or difficult situations? We do it because we like it because it gives us a sense of purpose and we like to feel that there is danger. And if there wasn't any, well, we'd manufacture some anyway. The the two lads then have a campfire, and I love all this. I just love. 70s footage of lads having a campfire in the, in the Pacific Northwest. This is making me very happy indeed. And I suspect some of this footage is not happening, you know, while they are several days into the super mega wilderness area because, I don't know, Robert Morgan's head looks freshly shaved and his goatee looks carefully tended. And hey, uh, may maybe he does bring his, his shaving stuff into the wilderness with him, I don't know. But if I was a cameraman or a crew making a low-budget pseudo documentary in 1974 i don't think and i needed a shot of the lads you know having a cookout i i think i'd do it closer to base camp to be honest after they got back but who knows the good news is while all of this is happening we are getting a lovely montage of 
Pacific Northwest woods and lads camping and uh, stock footage of wildlife while jaunty bluegrass banjo plays. So clearly all of my favorite elements of Americana here are being brought in together just to make me happy. And then Morgan says of this super wilderness area, oh, it's like stepping back into a time machine, which yeah man like like all almost all cryptozoology comes from this desire to live out the lost world fantasy to to believe that there are still crazy wild places that are ancient and primeval and nothing has changed there and um hey i love that stuff too but i think it i think it betrays a lack of understanding as to how landscapes really have changed <laughs> since those days um even even remote places in in the u.s where there aren't a lot of people living the things that we've done ecologically um especially with uh, removal of trees in certain areas and the spread of of deer in other areas have utterly changed um even even these relatively untouched places as well he then gets a phone call about a hair sample that he found um earlier on in the documentary and one of the team who is working with him because we see her she's a slightly older lady who works in a lab but we also also see her out in the field with Morgan at times so she's clearly involved in the expedition and she's some kind of geneticist she calls up and says oh we've Robert we've analyzed that hair oh and he's sitting on this couch in like I suppose his trailer or a caravan or something and the couch has this awful gaudy bright yellow 70s floral pattern which I I definitely had somewhere on a chair growing up in our house so it must have been ubiquitous she says uh, it turns out the sample was a human body hair from the lower extremities. And Robert Morgan is like, oh, but, but you know, the, that, the place where we found it, that just, it seems so unlikely that somebody would be there. And she's like, yeah, so sorry, bro. <laughs> what can I tell you? And then he kind of bites his tongue and has a bit of a cringe for the cameras and makes out like, oh, well, you know, thanks very much. You've made this a great day. That's just what we needed to hear. Whatever, Robert, whatever. And then, and then the plot kicks back in, and, and somebody in the editing room realized that we needed a bit of a uh, bit of narrative going on. So, um, the threat of a forest fire is introduced, and the element that time is running out. We need to get this expedition um, to a conclusion before we have to leave the area for fire safety reasons. And Robert Morgan starts pinning all of his hopes on this one location. He says, "Well, with the fire happening here and here." any creatures any bigfoot will have to move through this area to get out and i'm pinning all my hopes on this one place and interestingly it seems to be near ape canyon on the slopes of mount st helens and so, see, eventually he he's not able to get there in time and he sadly watches the fire from a distance with uh, sam melville the star of the rookies tv show who shows up just to you know mourn alongside robert morgan <laughs> And it turns out that the fire gets out of hand, they have to leave, and the expedition is over. And there are tears, and the music swells. There were not tears, of course, from Robert Morgan, because he's a manly man, but there are tears from the, the women on the expedition, because it's it's the 70s. And aside from the jaunty, bluegrassy music and the harmonica, the only other piece of music in this is a kind of a schmaltzy piano and strings affair, which probably came from some stock music kind of a thing and that swells as everyone gets sad because they're leaving and the narrator says but this isn't the end for robert morgan he'll be back next year and the year after and the year after as long as it takes but 
as we sadly look at Mount St. Helens from a distance, I can tell you that he will not be back the year after that because in 1980, of course, it blows its top and utterly changes all of that landscape forever. And then we get Bostonia Film Productions, 1975. So that was Bigfoot Man or Beast. I enjoyed it. Um, I quite liked Robert Morgan in this. I was on board for his expedition. I wanted to be part of it. I wished him every success. I uh, teared up at the requisite moments. I felt their pains, their highs and their lows. Was he being as honest as I had hoped? Well, I don't know. Well, let's, let's find out. I've done a little bit of reading about the background to this film and because I was just interested, you know, when did this happen? Who's filming it? Why are they filming it? So I'm going to return back to the book Regional Horror Films and an interview where the interviewer says, prior to Bloodstalkers, you had been involved in a documentary called The Search for Bigfoot. And Robert Morgan says, I'm virtually positive it was the very first serious expedition that was put together using some pretty well-qualified people. A lot of the people that were involved in that 74 expedition had already been with me on two or three trips prior to that. I had recruited a science advisory board. I had 17 men and women I conferred with. Most of them had their PhDs in a variety of complementary sciences. The first part of it was in Dallas, Oregon, but that was a bust. It was a pass-through, overnight thing. It wasn't where they dwelled for any period of time. Insofar as the film was concerned, I had no intention of filming it. I had work to do. We were contacted by Bostonia. They offered to come out and wanted to go with us. The thing for the Smithsonian series, Monsters, Mysteries or Myths, was shot about a month before the Bostonia crew showed up. So we actually had two films going. Uh, the interviewer says, I believe the Lawrence Crowley documentary, and he's a director of what we've just watched, I believe the Lawrence Crowley documentary was later re-edited and titled Bigfoot, Man or Beast. Robert Morgan says, probably Crowley was with Bostonia he probably re-edited the hell out of it I didn't get along too well with him they ran out of money they had already left and I kept telling them this is all built up we're not there yet of course he made it seem like the expedition ended when the forest fire hit that's the end of the movie but we continued straight on about five or six weeks later I got a report and we found 161 tracks in a row over varying terrain Grover Krantz drove from the other side of the state to spend the day with us. I called Larry Crowley and said, Get your ass on the plane and get out here now. He thought he was being hustled. He was from Boston and everything was a hustle with that guy. He said, We don't have any money and we've got everything we need. I said, You don't have anything like this. I think he thought we invented it. Well, good luck. I couldn't have invented that in a million years. So he missed the best part of it. So there you have it from Robert Morgan himself. Never really wanted to make a film. The company called him up and after they left, things got really good and they didn't, they weren't bothered coming back to see his 161 tracks. To finish up, I have another quote from the Life and Times of a Legend book. Um, keep in mind that all of these guys, all of these Bigfoot hunters who worked together at one point uh, would fall out and feud with each other over the years. And various books have different takes on who was right and who was wrong, who was faking things and who was not. Um, in particular, uh, the the Robert M. Pyle book, he's pretty 
buddy buddy with Peter Byrne but he's not too in favor of Green and Ahinden because of the way that the feuds went uh, in this case um, in, in the life and times of a legend he seems fairly down on uh, Peter Byrne and he's pretty down on Robert Morgan as well so I don't know for sure that this is true but this is what he says in the book another hoax came from Robert Morgan Morgan set the Bigfoot community ablaze in the mid-1970s when he announced that he'd received $45,000 to hunt Bigfoot in Washington, 40000 of it from the Louisa D. Carpenter Foundation in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and another 5000 from an anonymous Floridian. The grants were administered by the National Wildlife Federation, giving the expedition an air of respectability. Morgan was familiar with southern Washington, having hunted Bigfoot there several different times. At the end of the trek, he and what he called his team of scientific experts, claimed that they had found 161 tracks, collected fur, seen the beast, and recorded its vocalizations. But all was not as reputable as it seemed. For a time, Morgan's scientific consultants included Peter Byrne, whose Bigfoot Information Centre was headquartered nearby. Byrne accused Morgan of faking the tracks and was promptly fired. Maybe that explains why Peter Byrne... Uh, Irish, by the way, worth mentioning, is, is the last one of the Four Horsemen and the only one who doesn't appear in the documentary, <laughs> implying that perhaps the two lads' relationship was not great. Anyway, continuing the quote, if it was only Burns' word against Morgan, uh, that might not be much to the story, but Morgan's actions were those of a con artist. He made grandiose claims, he misrepresented his hunting team, the scientific experts had bachelor's degrees and a smattering of graduate work, but nothing that could be considered real scientific expertise. That's a little bit harsh. He left behind a load of unpaid bills. The National Wildlife Federation tried to distance themselves from him and just documenting various people who started off working with him but kind of dropped off and thought that he wasn't exactly legit. So... That may indeed be the case, but I certainly certainly enjoyed spending a bit of time with him uh, on that expedition via the documentary. So that has been a little bit of a chat about the YouTube documentary. Well, it's on YouTube. Uh, Bigfoot, Man or Beast. Hopefully you folks enjoyed that one. Don't forget, you can reach out to us over on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. As always, folks, stay safe, and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.